Hear the word of the Lord. After Saul returned from fighting with the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all Israel and went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today, the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I am trying to harm you? This very day, you can see with your own eyes it isn't true, for the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, at what I have in my hand. It is a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you've been hunting for me to kill you for me to to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you are trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As that old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is is as worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you. I'm Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting, welcome. Uh, If you're wondering about what's happening over there, we are getting close. Um, The roof is about to go on over there, and once the roof goes on, the wall can go in, and once the wall's in, the floor can go down. So pray for fast roofers. Uh, That's the last big hurdle. Bricks are going up on the vestibule, floors in the bathroom, tiles in the bathroom, some lights are up in the hallway. Uh, So it's coming real quick, which is just a matter of, uh, I'm not going to say how long. (laughs) I don't know. A couple weeks, I think. Um, barring any setbacks. Praise the Lord. Uh, also, I was tickled this morning. Uh, this guy who was standing over here, that was Philip Ravel, who's been at Sojourn for a long, long time. And then uh, we sent him out as a part of a team to uh, a church in Manhattan. That's part of our, our church planning network, a Sojourn network. And so it's a treat having him back in town. Uh, once upon a time, he and I were going to go change the world together, uh, but Lord said no. Um, <laughs> So it was a real treat having him back here and his wife, and he's got little twin babies now, and it's, it's fun. Uh, if you were ever wondering what kind of hairdo I would have if I wasn't balding, I would have Philip Ravel's hairdo. Uh, I've struggled with jealousy and envy for his hair for, I don't know, 10 years now. Uh, so that was a treat. Um, one thing I'm real excited about that I want to point out to y'all, uh, we're a month away, give or take. I'm not really sure what the date is today. 
24th? Oh, less than a month. Trunk or Treat is coming. And if you're like, what is Trunk or Treat? I've never heard of that, or I don't, whatever. Um, we'll talk about it in the weeks to come. Uh, the, the big message is if you're in a community group and you don't know how you're going to decorate your car, I just want you to know you're behind, which means you're probably going to lose the competition, which has lucrative prizes for best designed car. Um, I'm still a little bitter. Two years ago, we turned a truck into an X-Wing and addressed my daughter as an Ewok, and we didn't win. People thought it would look bad even though we were clearly the best car. Um, so I don't know what to do about that, but uh, that's what it is. Uh, and there's some other exciting stuff happening on the back of your bulletin. So um, we put a lot of thought into this. So take some time, go home. It's got good info on it. Uh, we're, we're still rolling in our, our series here on the life of David, which has been messing me up personally. Um, last week, I shared one of my deep, dark secrets uh, that I used to play music for a living. And by a living, I mean I slept in a car and drove around and played music, right? Uh, and some of you didn't believe me, but it was, it was the truth. Uh, you can Google it and everything. I don't know what will happen if you Google it, actually, but it's the truth. What? Is it really? I'm not going to tell you what she said because it was embarrassing for me. Uh, maybe you'll find my MySpace page and uh, figure out who my top eight were. Remember that? Remember that? Put a lot of thought into that. Um, when, uh, sometimes when I talk about those, uh, those years spent doing that, I call them kind of my wandering years. Uh, sometimes like working out some of that youthful angst. Um, I also wandered quite a bit, uh, driving somewhere between 60 and 90,000 miles a year, um, sleeping in a, once I had a Scion, I can't remember, XB. My wife called it the Xbox car. Uh, I got it because you could sleep in it and lay flat. Um, it wasn't as spacious inside the Accord. So I wandered a lot during those years, literally, uh, but they were also the first time that I started asking, uh, I think, some of the hardest and yet most spiritual questions of the Christian life. Uh, I found myself asking questions like, where are you, God? I, towards the end of college, I had this real clear sense, I thought, that this is what the Lord wanted me to do. And to be totally honest, those years were by and large miserable, uh, and it often left me with these feelings of, what are you up to, God? Or, well, what, is this, what is this all about? And there was one night in particular that it totally spun me out. And in some ways, it kind of marked the beginning of the end for me uh, of that whole part of my life. Um, I was pulling into a town, and I don't remember what it was called, Nowheresville, Tennessee, we'll call it. Not a place you would go to for vacation or something like that. And I was really excited because this leg of shows, I was starting to feel more legit. When you first start playing music for a living, you'll play anywhere that someone will let you. Uh, anywhere they'll let you plug in a guitar and open up a guitar case. You're like, yeah, happy to play that show. And eventually, you start wanting to do things like shower and eat consistently. And so you raise your standards a little bit. And I had started sending out uh, this thing called a contract where someone agrees that they'll give you money to pay at your show. And you can ask them for things and they can agree to give them to you or not. This was going to be my first time on the road with uh, contracts. So I was going to get paid. I was going to eat. I was going to shower. And it went so bad everywhere I went. And uh, the kind of icing on the cake was pulling up to the Rusty Lunchbox Bar and Grill. Um, I don't remember what it's called, but that's what it felt like to me, Rusty Lunchbox. And I, I walk in with my real legit looking manila envelope with our signed contract in it. And I go to the bartender and I say, hey, can I speak with Matt, please? It's like four o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, he's like, Matt, don't work here no more, buddy. I was like, okay. Um, and at that moment, I noticed a sign above uh, this little stage that said, 
uh, open mic night karaoke Friday. Uh, and it was Friday. And I said, well, I've got this contract here signed, signed by Matt. And who do I need to talk to, to to get this thing going for the show tonight? And the guy said, buddy, we don't do contracts. And I said, well, what about, what about my hotel and, and my dinner and the money that you're going to pay me? And he's like, I don't know about that, but we got open mic night tonight and you can play if you want. <laughs> and uh, to, to make matters worse, I had family coming in town to see uh, what their college-educated son was doing with their life. Um, so, uh, you know, at that, at that moment, I can remember standing out in front of this place with no money and with no food, a whole lot of shame, a whole lot of embarrassment, and uh, feeling like, what am I even doing here? Uh, what, what is this all about? What a waste. I'm such a failure. Uh, and that's kind of a benign example. Um, at the end of the day, my dad bought me dinner that night, I think. You, you know what I mean? It's not like my life really ended. Uh, the, the reality for us, though, is at some point in the Christian life, everyone is going to be faced with some kind of wilderness. Uh, think about what, what uh, the wilderness is. If Maybe you've been down to Red River Gorge or up to Charlestown State Park or something, and you go into this place where, where everything's suddenly unfamiliar, and you feel out of your element, and there's a sense of risk or a sense of, of danger, uh, the wilderness of our lives are these times uh, where we go into the unknown and, and life is not what we thought it would be. Um, our plans haven't worked out. We find ourselves in situations that aren't working out or we thought for sure we heard clearly from God and we're in this situation that seems anything but what we imagine God would have for us. And we inevitably begin asking those really big and really hard questions. Where are you, God? What are you doing? How could you do this to me? Um, Every Christian I know on a personal level, you know, that's like we're, we're real friends or we've had deep conversations or uh, every dead Christian whose books I've read um, at, at some point experiences a long period of time where it seems as though God is absent uh, and we fear that we're forgotten. And I know many Christians whose lives and, and faith have been derailed because we didn't know what to do in the wilderness. We didn't know what to do, and it seemed like God had forgotten. We, we come to such a time in the story that was read for us today. Um, before that, 1 Samuel 20 through 23 are some of the most devastating and difficult to read chapters, cert certainly of First and Second Samuel, because um, there's heartbreaking realizations that happen in there. Uh, up to that point, Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, the legal heir to the throne, was still kind of holding out hope that his dad was a good guy. Uh, and every kid, no matter how messed up your family is, every kid grows up kind of thinking dad's the king and mom's the queen. You know what I mean? They're the ideals of what a man or woman should be. And, and when that reality comes crashing down, that mom's messed up and, and dad's messed up, those are devastating experiences. And Saul learns that his dad isn't this, this good, wonderful man. He, he learns that his dad has actually been trying to kill his best friend, David. And, and at one point in chapter 20, Saul, or uh, Jonathan rather, shares this, it's, at the, it's simultaneously beautiful and heartbreaking, this hope that he has for David. So he says to his best friend, he says, may the Lord be with you as he used to be with my father. You know, he, he has this realization, dad is not a good man. God used to be with dad 
and he's not anymore. And I hope things turn out better for you, David. Saul, uh, we looked at it last week. He only increases his efforts in trying to kill, murder David. And it, it marks uh, this wilderness period of David's life where he's literally on the run, living in this kind of oasis desert retreat called En Gedi, amongst other places. Uh, David's living on the run. He's afraid for his life. At one point, David stops by the temple and a priest gives him some bread because he's starving. Saul finds out about it, has this kind of sham trial for the priest, and it ends up executing 85 priests because they fed a starving David. Um, and, and the text gets even more graphic. It, they didn't just kill the priests. They, they went to the priest's hometown and they killed the wives They killed the children, and the the text will point out even the babies were slaughtered. This is how crazy Saul has become. And while this is going on, David and his friends find themselves running from hideout to hideout, just trying to survive. David, who was anointed by Samuel, sleeps on the ground, and, and when he can, bathes in a stream. David, who defeated Goliath, and rescued Israel, is hiding in the woods like a hunted animal. David, whose life had all of this promise, and he was the anointed one, he was going to be king of Israel, has his life totally reduced to survival. During this time where he's physically, spiritually in in the wilderness, he writes some of his most famous songs. Uh, There's many psalms that you'll see that are titled written during the wilderness years or written during the wandering years. And they they give us insight into what is David thinking and feeling? What is he praying when he's running for his life? And and one of those is Psalm 63. This is just verse one. This is just verse one. And look at all that's packed in here. God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Where are you, God? David probably said it better than you do or I do, but this is what we feel in these times. It's not just that I'm physically thirsty where there's no water. My soul is thirsty for you. I feel dry without you. My, My whole body wants you. What do we do in times like this? Why does God allow us to go into places like this? Chapter 24 of 1 Samuel gives us insight into the wilderness, and it gives us wisdom for the wilderness. What happens there and how we can be willing and receptive to the Lord's presence there. Because even in the wilderness where God seems absent and hope is lost, God is at work. Even when he feels far away, the promise of the scriptures and what we see play out over and over in the story of the Bible is that God is always near. In the wilderness, as David learned, we learn how to do business with God. And anytime someone is willing to do business with God, to deal with God, to be confronted by God and receptive by God, we come out on the other side transformed. We come out the other side living more like a human being. So this is what happens here. David's on the run. It's a hot day, like it probably will be today. 
And David and his men seek refuge in the back of a deep, dark cave because it's not fun to walk around in the desert when it's hot. It's not like, not a real profound spiritual reason that they've gone hiding in this cave. There's 3,000 of Saul's elite troops searching for them. And they're just looking for a place to be safe and be cool. Something unexpected happens. Verse 3. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. So I guess caves back then were kind of like rest stops for us, you know? Would you rather do your business out in the desert or in the cave where it's cool? And I guess he wanted to go in the cave because that's what happened, right? Uh, I'm sorry, that word relieve himself means a whole lot. And this is just us being gentle about what that actually means. So he's got his morning newspaper. He's going into the cave. He's going to do his thing, okay? And what he doesn't realize is that back in the cave are David and his band of merry men. I don't know how many, but they're, they're back there. And David's men see what I think most of us would see, opportunity. Uh, opportunity to not go hungry anymore opportunity to not sleep on the ground anymore or to be afraid anymore. Opportunity to go home to my wife and my bed and my children. One of the things I've come to see about all of these times in the wilderness that we experience is almost inevitably they bring with it a temptation for the easy way out. Most of us See the wanderings and the longings and the confusion as something to end. So we strive to fix it or to get out of it. We just want it to stop. This is what David's men have in mind. Verse 4, they whisper to him, Now's your opportunity. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. I mean, the odds... (laughs) What are the odds this would just happen, right? So I was like, that's a nice cave. Here I go. They thought they were so far away from each other. Neither one of them expected this to happen. Surely God is doing something here. One quick sin, David, and it will all be over. And you just have to imagine some of them are sitting there saying, it would be worth it. It's worth it, David. So hunkering in the dark, Clutching a knife, David sees Saul toss off his robe and sit, and he inches forward and slices off a piece of his robe, and it's the moment we're waiting for. Vengeance, right? He's going to get what he deserves. Verse 5, but then David's conscience began bothering him. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one. But the Lord himself has chosen him. This wasn't an easy conversation. And in the language here, it says David tore apart his men with words. Like they're in, having intense back and forth conversation. But David says, I can't do it. He's the Lord's anointed one. The Lord has chosen him. I won't do it. And if that isn't crazy enough, he... he watches Saul walk out the cave. And then if that's not crazy enough, David goes running after Saul. He shows him the piece of robe that he cut. 
and he pleads with him. He says, this proves I'm not trying to harm you and that I've not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. It's a stunning reaction that David has here. He never did anything but be faithful to Saul and Saul's thrown spears at him. He sent troops to his house. He's tried to kill David and the prophet. He's killed almost a hundred priests hunting David. And David could have ended it all here in one minute. All the suffering, all of the confusion. And instead, Saul goes back home and David goes back to the woods. What happened to David in the wilderness that he could respond this way? We know he was writing songs and you can go look at many psalms and see what is processing, what is happening in David, but something happened to him during this time. How could he say no to the obvious way out? What is the wisdom for the wilderness that is waiting here for us? Well, clearly God had plans for David. When most of us think of God's plan for my life, though, we think about what will I achieve with my life? What will I do? What kind of job will I have? What accomplishments will I make? But God is far more interested in the kind of man or woman you are than the kind of activities that you do. He's far more interested in who you're becoming than how you're being busy. And one of the most profound things that happens in the wilderness is God sends us out to these places so that we can go in. So so that who we are can be transformed in ways that typically don't happen when everything is lush and comfortable and nice. Think about this with David. He didn't choose the wilderness, okay? Some, Some Christians think, well, it's hard and painful, so it must be the will of God. Not true, okay? If it's hard and painful or you might die, that doesn't mean that God wants you to do it. Pain is not inherently virtuous, David didn't choose the wilderness. He was chased there. He could have set his heart on changing his circumstances. Instead, he sets his heart on the Lord, which is a huge difference. God, if you would just, how many times do we find ourselves there? If you would just do this, God, if you would just change my circumstances, then I would be happy. But over and over, David cries out, if I could just get you, everything would be okay. That's his desire. And that comes about as David goes into the wilderness and his life is stripped to bare survival. Have you ever had that happen? You ever lived on the coast during a hurricane or ever had an earthquake and the power goes out? Or maybe you're from Henryville and experienced the tornado a few years ago. Like when life becomes about survival, it is incredibly clarifying and simplifying. All of a sudden, you're not so worried about how many likes your Facebook post got when you're trying to purify water so you can drink it. Life becomes incredibly simple, and and what's most important creeps to the surface. Have you ever wondered why you sleep with the television on? Have you ever wondered why you fill your life with noise? What happens when you get quiet? All this stuff comes up. The stuff that so many of us want to avoid and act like isn't there, the reasons we're angry, bad memories, bitterness, our own brokenness. And we can do business with that or we can hide. 
So in the wilderness, a lot of our defense mechanisms, a lot of the ways that we hide are stripped bare. And we can choose to keep running or to do business with the Lord. In the wilderness, who we are is exposed and and we learn if we really believe what we believe. We have the opportunity to be honest. I confess to a God of love and I scream at all the people closest to me. Why? David was able to see his time in the wilderness as a proving ground for his faith. And that's not where he like proves his faith. I mean, like it was a foundry. It was a forge where the fire purified it. And you got to find out is what I believe. Is it working? Has it moved from my head down into my soul and transformed me? David believed in a God that was present in the wilderness, that was that was teaching him and transforming him. And so David was searching for that God, even when he couldn't find him, even when it seemed like he wasn't there. For us, we have to fight to believe that the times in the wilderness are not wasted times. The the only way to waste times like these is to focus on simply getting through them or making them stop. If you believe God isn't present in pain and and suffering, that that greatly increases the odds that you will waste your pain and suffering. And so in the wilderness, God forces us to face who we really are for the sake of our own transformation. And if we're willing to do that work, if we're willing to face what comes up, if we're willing to name our fears, be honest with God and with each other, we have to be prepared for the inevitable temptation that will come. Have you ever noticed that when you like put your flag in the ground, I'm not doing this anymore, all of a sudden, there's a whole lot of temptation to go do that. Did anybody ever, one person to say amen to me, please? You've seen that? You know what I mean? Like for me, I'm like, I'm not eating, I won't eat McDonald's breakfast for a year. And the next day, McDonald's is like six biscuits for $3, you know, and you're like, surely it's of the Lord, right? Like, when we're in the wilderness, there's an inevitable temptation to just simply try to end it. Too many of us, too many of us see pain and trial as evidence of God's displeasure. So something goes sideways or life gets hard. And the immediate questions we ask are, what did I do to deserve this? What did David do? He was faithful and did everything that was asked of him. In other words, David didn't deserve this. For a lot of you, you probably, based on your own merits, don't deserve the stuff that you went through, the wildernesses that you went through, especially in early life. You know, like you didn't vote for mom and dad and all their crazy that they raised you in. Some of you do deserve the junk that you're going through. But all of us, all of us will face a temptation to just end it. And we must fight the temptation of thinking that pain and trial is evidence of God's displeasure. Just because, again, something is difficult or painful doesn't mean it's from the Lord, but we can't dismiss something simply because it's painful either. The the wilderness will bring with with it the temptation of taking matters into our own hand. And and this can become an ends justify the means mentality. David is on the run to avoid being murdered, which 
I think most of us would affirm, don't just get murdered, right? Like, avoid that. But, but then the, the, the temptation here, how will you avoid getting murdered? Well, just do a little murder. It's something that fascinates me about, and I, I get it, it's complicated. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this, but that somehow we think bigger bombs will end the cycle of violence. They're threatening to kill us, so if we just kill them, they won't want to kill us. And then on the other side, they're saying, well, they're trying to kill us, so if we killed them, they just wouldn't kill us. And like, at some point, we're going to have to realize that bombs don't stop people from making bombs. To put it more in the context of this text, God will never call you to end a trial by sinning. God's big plan for us and all of his temptations, all the temptations we endure, the the wilderness experiences, God's intentions are never to say, well, I'm just going to help them do this sin here. That's my big lesson for them. Help you become a more sophisticated liar or a more stealthy throat slitter in dark caves. Like that is not God's plan. God's plan for you will never culminate in sin But rather, if we're willing to receive it and receive these times, receive the presence of God, we'll find that the wilderness is where God's promises are proven true. We can receive these times as deeply transforming times. So again, David's heart and posture is on display for us during the Psalms and many of the Psalms. I want to consider a few verses from Psalm 57. So if you're here this morning, you're like, okay, like you've primed the pump. What do you want me to do when we're in this kind of experience or when we're in this period of time? This is David's wisdom for us here, okay? So verse, or verse one through three, Psalm 57. When life is not going the way David planned, he rests in God's sovereignty. Listen to what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection, I'll hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. Like, do you see the posture of David here? He's not saying, I gotta work this out. I gotta figure out a way to get Saul off my back. I gotta figure out how to make life the way I want it to be again. On the one hand, he's not just giving up. You know, he's not saying, come kill me, Saul. But at the same time, he's saying, God will protect me. God will fulfill his purpose for me. I'm not going to, whatever, derail the plan for my life. God will do what God says he's going to do, and I'm looking to God to protect me. I won't take matters into my own hands. I will trust you to bring justice. I won't panic. You'll fulfill your purpose for me. I won't scheme and freak out over my own safety. I'll trust you for protection. When, when David uh, feels as though God is absent and his life is at risk, He rests in God's unfailing love and faithfulness. So at the end of verse three, he says, my God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. He doesn't give into the temptation to say, God has forgotten me. God is full of it. God is a liar or whatever. He's rehearsing these truths. God's love is unfailing and he is faithful. David refuses to cling to his life. Have you ever noticed when trial hits how almost all of us become, I don't know how else to say it, just kind of raging narcissists where we just circle in on our lives and try to hold on to everything and make every situation about our situation and everything becomes about me and my plans and my future and my kids and my money and me, me, me. Look at what David says here. 
Verse five, he says, be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. This is what David is is saying here in the wilderness. He's saying, it's not my glory. It's not my plans. It's not my life. It's not my schedule. My life is yours, God. One of the most freeing things that can happen in life is when you get these moments of really believing your life is not about you. And David has found incredible safety in saying, my life is about God. And what does all of this produce in him? Verse seven, my heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. I sometimes wonder what David would think if he came to our church and saw how hard it is for most of us to sing on Sundays or how concerned we are or how nervous we are about what is everyone else thinking about me? And David's running around in caves singing praises. Why? Because he's satisfied. He's safe. He's at peace because he's got God. He's resting in these promises and the wilderness has simplified his life and he can experience God for who he is. David's life didn't begin in this kind of wilderness and it didn't end there, but he did spend significant time there and it was a wilderness he didn't vote for. So when God seemed to be in the dark and far away, David didn't fight, he journeyed inward. He didn't take matters into his own hands, he trusted God. He didn't cling to his life and plans. He rather devoted himself to God's life and God's plans. And he found peace and satisfaction in the promises and presence of God, even when he didn't know how his story would end. So if you're in the wilderness this morning, I want you to know you're in good company. You're in good company in the Bible, and you're in good company around here. The Bible is filled with wilderness stories. And they're always deeply transforming and powerful. Jesus himself, he begins his ministry. Have you ever thought about this? Jesus spent 30 years being a normal dude, working hard and showing up. And how does his ministry kick off? He goes out into the desert to be tempted, not not by his his boys, not, not by his army that was devoted to him, but by Satan. Satan offers him food when he's starving. But Jesus says, I trust the word of God to provide for me. Satan offers Jesus power and authority. Jesus trusted God's plans for his life. Satan offered Jesus the the easy way out, but Jesus instead laid down his life willingly in the desert. Jesus has been tempted every way that you have been. He's faced times of God's absence and in the great wilderness of his suffering, hanging from the cross, For the first time in all eternity, Jesus cries out, my father, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? At the cross, we learn that God doesn't simply lead us into the desert and he doesn't simply like have empathy for us in the desert. One of the real mistakes in a series like this is we can say, here's the eight ways to be like David or something like that. Um, Does God have empathy for us when he sees us in our trials and suffering? Absolutely. Does he cry for us? Does he draw near and weep for us? Absolutely. But what the cross tells us is God doesn't just pay attention and isn't just aware. He actually goes into the desert with us. He goes into the wilderness for us. He knows what it's like. 
This will make your head roll off if you think about it too long. God knows what it's like to cry out, where are you, God? Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned by his father or to be concerned about how his life is going to turn out. And at the cross, we're given a beautiful picture of how all of our times of pain and suffering will end if we hold on to trusting God and following him. Every crucifixion ends in a resurrection. We can learn from David, absolutely. But far more importantly, we can trust Jesus. He's with us. He's present to us, and he will guide us. We just can't make the mistake of thinking because life is hard that he's left us or because something unexpected happens, we've somehow displeased God. And we have such a beautiful, vivid reminder of this. Uh, that this is the reality. Jesus calls us back to week in and week out. Uh, so follow with me now. I know this is when we zip up our Bibles and go get our kids, but think about this for a second. Uh, he takes a loaf of bread and he breaks it. He didn't have to break it. Why did he break it? So that when he broke it, he would say, remember, this is my body. And my body has been broken for you. You want a God who knows how to suffer, who knows what you're going through, who's been where you've been. You have that in Jesus. He went into the wilderness. He went into the cross and his body was broken for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals my relationship with you. And think about what this means. How do you know? Here's the best way to answer. If you're ever struggling, has God left me or is God displeased with me? Ask yourself, has the blood of Jesus still been spilled? If the blood of Jesus has been spilled, you are close to God and he is near to you and he is pleased with you. What keeps you safe with God? What secures your relationship with God? It's the blood of Christ shed for you, not how well your life is going, not how good you're doing. So what, what, what does that mean? It means even when it seems like he's far away, he's near to us. And could it be that God in his infinite wisdom is doing something in us that maybe he couldn't do any other way? Could it be when God feels absent, he's just present to us in a way that's foreign to us? He's doing something in us that's hard to discern. I plead with you Christians to learn to embrace this time and receive it, become receptive and willing to follow and trust God as he brings us through these seasons. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what will you do with a God who bleeds for you? Do you know, if anything, if you're here and you're not a Christian, please just don't say all religions are the same. There's lots of things you could say about world religions. You just can't say they're the same. Because on the one hand, we, have, we say, if you do this your whole life perfectly, We'll see what God says at the end and how that will go for you. And over here, we say, Jesus came and died for you. And now you are safe. What will you do with a God who's bled for you? Who loves you so much that he would enter into the wilderness of your own suffering and temptation. And he offers to heal you and transform you. If your head's spinning or you feel him tugging, that's, that's the God of the universe pursuing you. And I'll just tell you, if you're feeling that now, it won't go away until you turn your face to him. You don't need to do it right now, I suppose. But at some point in life, uh, the only way that voice uh, will silence is if you recognize it as the voice of God saying, I love you, will you come home to me? 
we'll have people up front afterwards that you can pray with or talk through what does that mean. Essentially, you just cry out to God, lead me and I'll follow you. If you're a Christian, our, our tradition is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread and you can dip it in wine or juice. A wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and we'll have gluten-free elements to my left, your right. I'll pray for us and then Christians come participate in communion as you're ready. Let's pray.